one knows exactly what to think. When Darcy meets Wickham in Meryton, his eyes are arrested at the sight of him, and when Wickham tips his hat, Darcy barely deigns to return the salutation. Elizabeth longs to know the explanation for this awkward encounter, but she dares not broach the subject herself, so she is relieved when Wickham raises it. According to Wickham, his father worked for Darcy's father as superintendent of his estate. The late Mr. Darcy was indebted to Wickham's father for his service, and felt great affection for Wickham himself. Therefore, upon his death, he bequeathed a living to Wickham, but out of a spiteful jealousy, Darcy denied it to him. Hearing this story, Jane remarks, with her characteristically benevolent impulse to grant the benefit of doubt, It is difficult indeed. It is distressing. One does not know what to think. And Elizabeth responds, with her usual decisiveness and confidence of judgment, I beg your pardon. One knows exactly what to think. Given her greater sensibilities and Jane's credulousness, we are inclined to side with Elizabeth. But reading this section, I did stop to ask myself, does one know what to think? Part of the reason for my pause was that Elizabeth raised a number of very valid questions, which, if they could not be satisfactorily answered, would cast doubt on the credibility of his story. First, she says, Good heavens! But how could that be? How could his will be disregarded? Why did you not seek legal redress? I wondered the same thing myself. It seemed to me there would be means provided by law to challenge so wanton a disregard of someone's will. But Wickham had an answer. There was just such an informality in the terms of the bequest as to give me no hope from law. Struggling to comprehend how Darcy could have gotten away with so abominable an injustice, Elizabeth then says, This is quite shocking. He deserves to be publicly disgraced. There, too, I thought, why hasn't he been? Why is this travesty not widely known? Once again, Wickham can offer an explanation. His love for and loyalty to Darcy's father means he can never bring himself to disgrace the family name. He says, Till I can forget his father, I can never defy or expose him. Elizabeth then seems uncomprehending of how even a man as cold as Darcy could be guilty of such inhumanity. She asks, But what can have been his motive? What can have induced him to behave so cruelly? Wickham's answer? A thorough, determined dislike of me. A dislike which I cannot but attribute, in some measure, to jealousy. Elizabeth clearly takes Wickham at his word— and yet she still seems to be experiencing impulses of doubt. It seems to her that the pride she found so distasteful in Darcy would prevent him from doing something so dishonorable. She says, I wonder that the very pride of this Mr. Darcy has not made him just to you. If from no better motive, that he should not have been too proud to be dishonest, for dishonesty I must call it. Wickham asserts that in Darcy's behavior to him, there were stronger impulses even than pride. Still convinced by the truth of Wickham's narrative, another confusion comes to mind. She cannot comprehend how someone like Mr. Bingley could claim intimacy with a man so cruel. She says, How can Mr. Bingley, who seems good humor itself and is, I really believe, truly amiable, be in friendship with such a man? How can they suit each other? 
Wickham's account of it is that Darcy behaves differently with men of consequence than he does with those beneath him. He says, Mr. Darcy can please where he chooses. He does not want abilities. He can be a conversable companion if he thinks it worth his while. Hearing Wickham's story from Elizabeth, Jane refuses to believe Darcy capable of what he accuses. But we are reminded in a particularly amusing fashion that Jane's generosity of spirit lands her in irreconcilable contradictions. She says, quote, They have both been deceived, I dare say, in some way or other, of which we can form no idea. Interested people have perhaps misrepresented each to the other. It is, in short, impossible for us to conjecture the causes or circumstances which may have alienated them without actual blame on either side. Unquote. And Elizabeth wryly responds, quote, Very true indeed. And now, my dear Jane, what have you got to say on behalf of the interested people who have probably been concerned in the business? Do clear them, too, or we shall be obliged to think ill of somebody. Unquote. So, we are inclined to side with Elizabeth, but aside from the sheer array of uncomprehending questions she raises to Wickham, there were a couple of other things that left me in doubt about whether one knows exactly what to think. The first is that Elizabeth confessed from the outset that she might have more easily forgiven Darcy's pride had he not wounded hers. Their first encounter established the theme of a narrative in which she has seemed a little blindly stuck. The second is how much she judged Wickham by his cover, whether the ease of his manners or even the pleasantness of his face. She thinks to herself that his very countenance vouches for his amiability, and she declares to Jane that there was truth in his looks. And finally, there was an ambiguity in that first encounter with Darcy and Wickham that I thought seemed deliberate in its provocation of questions. We are told that both changed color— one looked white, the other red. But we are not told who changed what color, or why. So, are we to know exactly what to think? I don't.